Uh, I wanted to talk about some work that I've done. I always want to give credit at the start. There's a whole bunch of people that have been working on this project. Uh, Vlad Chikov, Christy Kim, Megan Kelly, and Lawrence No. We're all part of this lab, Mad Lab at uh, Duke, where we do experiments together. And my job is to kind of fund the experiments and then draw out the philosophical implications. So all the, all the experiments, it's like it's their fault. I'm just, uh, I'm just the philosopher in the group. Um, what got us interested in this uh, particular project is a certain method in moral philosophy, in many areas of philosophy, but moral philosophy in particular, where people uh, take certain theories and they want to test those theories against particular uh, examples. Uh, and so they have intuitions about those examples and they say, well, this theory is no good because it doesn't handle this example. Uh, that theory is good because it handles that example and so on. But of course, if your intuitions about that particular example are unreliable, then that's not really all that great a test. It's kind of like using dirty test tubes in a chem lab or something like that. Uh, there's another more practical issue here, though, that we often uh, decide things in hospitals or uh, in IRBs uh, in, with experimental labs, um, uh, with ethics committees of various sorts. And so if those committees are making these life and death decisions for certain people, then we want to make sure that those committees are operating in ways that are going to be likely to yield the right result and not just an arbitrary result uh, that uh, could not really be uh, reliable or justified. So the question that we wanted to ask was, how do our moral intuitions get affected by the social context? You know, when the committee comes in and the other people say, yes, 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 and now it's your turn, how much is your reaction in that committee affected by the people that came before you? Um, and also, this question which philosophers always ought to ask, you know, so what? What difference does it make that it is? Maybe that's a good thing, maybe that's a bad thing. Uh, what's its importance? What are its implications? So those are the issues that we want to uh, address. And notice that this question, how much and in what ways are moral intuitions affected by social contact, that's an empirical question. We want to know how much they're affected. We want to know what circumstances change it. And then philosophers have to come in with the normative um, background that they have and decide whether that's good or bad. Okay? So let's start with the empirical question. Uh, this is just one example of a long series of experiments testing social conformity. And, and I'll admit right from the start, because Joanna will probably criticize it. So this is the one with the biggest effect. I'll admit that, okay? <laughs> but it's such a dramatic effect, I can't help but like start out with it, okay? They had 170 uh, undergrads in an intro psych class. Pretty, pretty large number of subjects. And what they did is they asked people the following question. To what extent do you support or oppose the use of stress techniques when interrogating suspected terrorists, such as sleep deprivation, waterboarding, right, waterboarding, uh, <coughs> strapping detainees to a board and dunking them underwater, long periods of hanging detainees in painful positions, uh, and so on. Uh, so the question is, you know, enhanced interrogation, as they call it, uh, when interrogating suspected terrorists. Notice it's not an emergency or anything like that. It's just using these techniques in that way, okay? And they had people answer on the following scale from negative three to positive three, where it went 
opposing strongly, moderately, or slightly. And then zero is neither opposing nor supporting. And then one, two, three was supporting slightly, moderately, uh, or strong. So the negative numbers mean opposition, and the positive numbers mean support. Now, what they did was, was actually quite tricky, because they wanted to understand not just whether people conform, but whether they're just kind of conforming for the sake of conforming, or whether it really is affecting their belief. And so they actually asked the subjects three times before they just, they just brought them in and said, what's your answer to this question? Right? And they gave answers. And then they brought in Confederates in a group that had them answer, and then they answered after the Confederates, while still in the same room with that group. And then after the test, they brought them back, okay, so what do you really think? Okay? Uh, when, there no, when the Confederates aren't there anymore. And the group, by the way, included four Confederates. The first one said, I strongly support it. I'm, the second said, I moderately support it. The third said, I slightly support it. And the fourth said, I strongly support it. Now they thought, if all four of them are uniform, maybe that's going to have a big effect. But if we just change one, to replace a slight support in the third place with slight opposition, then maybe that'll be enough for the person who opposes it to stay over and still oppose it. Because now at least they've got one ally out of the four. Turned out that had no effect. Uh, so they just combined the, the numbers for the two uh, different groups. But I find it interesting that merely having one person on your side didn't actually have a big effect. 80% of the subjects <coughs> changed their view between what they said in the original question and what they said when they were in the group after the Confederates expressed. So most of them were opposed to these enhanced interrogation techniques and moved over. Uh, and many of them, 80% moved, some of them moved to the other side and now supported it, okay? 80% uh, changed. But what was really amazing about this result is that after the group interaction, uh, they brought it out back in private, and then they asked them again, and they stuck with the view that they had expressed in the group. They didn't go back to the original group. So it looked like they actually changed their belief. So here's the thing. Uh, column one is degree of support before the test. You can see the mean was, um, <coughs> that one doesn't work much better. The mean was negative uh, 228. That means between moderately opposed and strongly opposed, right? But in the group is number seven, so that's point, negative point two. That's not different statistically from neutral, which means you know, half of them are, or close to half are going to be opposing, close to half are going to be supporting, uh, and, uh, and the mean. And so a lot of people have obviously changed. And then after the group, when you're back in private, negative point two three. So they're really pretty much going from negative 0.2 to negative 0.23. They're pretty much staying the same after you take them out of the group, which suggests that uh, their views have actually changed. It's not just that they're saying that in the group to avoid a fight, because there is no fight afterwards. Okay? I'm going to stop here once while like this and just ask whether there's a clarificatory question that you want to get straight before we move on. It doesn't have to be, but if there is, I'm going to give you a chance. Joanna gets to go first if there is one. Are there any questions about this original study? Okay. So, obviously, they're not all going to have that big an effect. They're not all going to 
work out as cleanly. They don't always do the three things, but there's a whole body of literature about these kinds of social effects, and that's what I think raises interesting philosophical issues. It's interesting partly because it undermines what I take to be a traditional ideal in moral theory uh, of self-sufficiency or autonomy. Here's Aristotle. The wise person is able, and the more able, the wiser he is, to study even by himself. And though he presumably does it better with colleagues, even so he is more self-sufficient than any other virtuous person. So Aristotle is saying, you should be able to study by yourself and figure these things out if you're really a person of, uh, if you're a wise person. You don't need the other people. Maybe you can use them, maybe they help, but you don't need them. And so he wants people in their moral reflections to be self-sufficient, not dependent on others. Here's Kant. Would it not therefore be wiser in moral matters to acquiesce in the common moral judgment as opposed to appealing to reason? Innocence is indeed a glorious thing. I don't know why he writes that way, but glorious <laughs> thing. But on the other hand, it's very sad that it cannot well maintain itself being easily led astray. His problem, it sounds like, is that you know, if you're conforming to a social group, you're going to be easily led astray because you're going to end up with different groups at different times and be led back and forth, just like the people in the Aramidus study, right? 80% of them change their view when they happen to fall in with these four confederates that were expressing uh, their opinions, right? Contrary to opinions that were contrary to what they had said before they ran into those people. Um, Psychology uh, had, takes a somewhat different perspective, but in the old days, in the uh, 60s, 70s, even into the 80s, Kohlberg was the king of moral psychology, and he had a similar view uh, related to Kant and Aristotle. He had the conventional level, uh, I'm going to go through his whole theory, I assume people are at least somewhat familiar with it, but at the conventional level, stage three, that was a really low level, this was three out of six. And that's where people were following the conventions of their society and going along with what other people think. And he thought that was pretty low and hit people when they were like six, seven years old, right? But when you get to be an adult or a philosopher, even better, then you've got the highest level, which is stage six, and that's when you appeal to principles, not to what other people think, and you think it through yourself. So Kohlberg is following in this same tradition that we claiming that we ought to follow, form our moral judgments kind of independently of other people's opinions. Just think about them, think about the facts, and focus on that, okay? Uh, recently, psychologists have been more cognizant of these social influences on moral judgment. Uh, so this is John Haidt. Uh, you'll notice that stage four and three are the social persuasion links where this person A is affecting B's intuition. But if you read his articles, you find he says this happens. He even cites uh, Solomon Ash, who will be the hero of a lot of these studies, um, although I won't go through his experiments for lack of time. Um, but he cites some of the literature. We don't really say anything about it. He goes, we know that happens. We know that happens. And he doesn't you know, bother to investigate it because he's more interested in, in links one and two, and three and four get ignored. When you get to more recent models of moral judgment like Paxton and Green, uh, you, you find that they are being more explicit, reason, social influence, social persuasion, and intuitive social influence. But what I love about this diagram, this is straight out of their article, is notice the question marks. On all three of those, they go, 
okay, so we know this happens, we don't know how it happens, we don't know how often, uh, we haven't figured that out yet. So that's kind of the empirical uh, project that we wanted to engage in. Uh, so our question is how much, well, let me, I'll just get the whole thing out, so. How much are our own moral judgments affected by the moral judgments of other people? Okay, and the how much means includes in what way and in what circumstances. Uh, our own, well, maybe we want to ask uh, most peoples or philosophers, you know, you might want subsets. Moral judgments, well, we're talking about real judgments, uh, which could be beliefs, verdicts, methods of deliberation, implicit, explicit, or it could be emotions or just public statements. We're talking about causally affected, uh, whether you believe it or express it, and of course, other people, well, which other people? Friends, parents, spouses, family members, philosophers, so on, okay? So this, you know, this question actually has a lot of different variations, but that's the general idea. Again, I'm gonna stop here once on this side. Are there any questions you want me to clarify what the issue is, right? This is the question, is how much are our judgments affected? I think it's important because it undermines the traditional view of Kant and Aristotle. Okay. Previous studies had certain limitations. I cited around events in an earlier version. I had like three or four of these studies and I went through them, but it turns out that they all give you, you know, uh, similar stories with different degrees of effect. Uh, 30 to 35% is fairly typical. Um, the Aramovich was much bigger. But one of the limitations of previous studies is that it doesn't have very many subjects. Aramovich had 170, that was one of the biggest. A lot of them just have 30 or 40 subjects, and I don't want to draw any conclusions from such a small number of subjects. Secondly, the, uh, in these original studies based on Solomon Ash's paradigm, uh, people would meet in the room face to face. And that introduces a lot of factors. You have to train the Confederates to actually behave the same way, but in order to avoid problems, you have to tell them what you're testing, and then they might misbehave. They might somehow, you know, send us, you know, the clever Hans syndrome. You might send a signal uh, that uh, people are picking up on in the tone of voice or body language, which is having an effect. So you kind of worry, you worry about that. Um, also, they're often done on the same campus uh, with students, and that means that the uh, subjects in your experiment know that they're likely to run into each other again in a dorm or in a dining hall or wherever. And so there's some social costs that get imposed in if you disagree with people, and, and that might affect the results. And so we wanted to look at a different context, uh, namely the internet. Uh, because on the internet, sometimes you get these people showing their pictures, but you know they're from different places. This is the president of the Walker Rehab Center, and this is you know uh, at the uh, University of Maryland uh, College. They're not probably not going to run into each other again. Don't know who they are. But notice you get these likes, like eight likes. This this person got thirty likes, and so you're signaling. Uh, on the internet, when you engage, when you enter these um, dialogues, you're signaling how many people there are that agree with you. I mean, you didn't do it, but the, the information is there. And the question is, you know, how does that kind of uh, information affect people? Uh, we're at this point actually uh, hiring a programmer to do a, a bot that will go around the web and check these things out, and then you can get giant numbers. But we haven't we haven't done that yet. Uh, you can just check the number of likes. 
and then see how that affects the next entries in the blogs. Um, but that's an ongoing project. We don't have any results from that yet. What we do have is uh, a few online studies. Uh, we use Amazon Mechanical Turk. How many people are not familiar with Amazon? It's, it's kind of, okay, uh, that I won't have to go over it. Uh, subjects are, uh, we restricted our subjects to English-speaking U.S. citizens over 18. Uh, we used 302 subjects on one scenario, 290 on another, so we're trying to get much larger numbers of subjects. Um, the scenarios were like this. Um, a family's dog was killed by a car in front of their house. They had heard that dog meat was delicious, so they cut up the dog's body and cooked it and ate it for dinner. This is from a 1993 Jonathan Hyde article. Um, and, uh, and so it's obviously, uh, it's intended to elicit disgust and to yield the moral judgment that it's wrong on the basis of that disgust. Uh, the second one is meant to be a harm scenario. We wanted one of each so we could see whether there were differences in different types of scenarios. And this is just the kind of classic Alfred Hitchcock. I don't know if any of you have seen Lifeboat by Alfred Hitchcock. Great movie, you should see it if you haven't. And it's, you know, you have to throw somebody overboard to save the other people uh, in the lifeboat. So those are the two scenarios. About 300 subjects uh, saw each one. And we asked them, how morally wrong do you think the agent's actions were to eat the dog or kick the person out of the lifeboat? We gave them the options uh, from zero to 10. Uh, zero being completely morally acceptable, nothing wrong with it whatsoever, and 10 being completely morally condemnable, like that's as bad as anything. You know, that's up there with genocide. Or, uh, we didn't get a lot of those. Um, and we had three conditions, either the baseline, just ask them the question, because you want them to, but the other one said 75 people who previously took this survey rated this action as morally acceptable, right? And then another group, 75 people who previously took this survey rated it as morally condemnable. Um, the reason why we said 75 people did this um, is that we were working in a neuroeconomics lab and you're not actually allowed to lie in any of your experiments, so we had to do a pre-survey where we got at least 75 people who said these things. Took us like several hundred before we got 75 on each side. And, and 75 is okay, and they said, you know, and then we actually asked them afterwards, and almost all the subjects, oh, we thought you got 75%. But, but we didn't, and we didn't say that, so we're not lying, so it was okay. Okay. Um, Anyway, that's a little background story. Uh, and here are the results. Uh, you notice when they got the 75 people said it was acceptable. Uh, it was much, it was more acceptable. Uh, that little star means significant to 0.05 p-value. Uh, these are standard error bars. And, uh, and what you get is the difference. I can't, this life's not working. The difference between this one and this one uh, is the effect of social conformity. So it's going from like 5.8 to... 7.1, that's in the A scenario with the dog, and here it's going from what, 4.8 to uh, 6.1, that's in the uh, lifeboat scenario. So that's the degree uh, to which it affected the means, okay? But we wanna know why this is happening. That's, you know, that's the, the, the big question, and we don't really know the answer to that yet. There are lots of possibilities, and I think Joanna's gonna talk about some of them. Uh, but uh, 
we, we wanted you know we wanted to start looking at that. So we did another survey with now 496 and 506 subjects on different in the different conditions, um, and we said 75 people who previously took this survey rated it as morally condemnable and said something similar to those barbaric passengers committed a horrible murder. And the reason we did things like this, it's a little stilted in language, you had to keep it short, and you know, it's not perhaps the best cue, and we're working with other ones, but uh, the idea is that maybe people are uh, in the group, they don't want other people to feel badly towards them. So if they think, you know, if they hear something like that, they're gonna be more likely to kind of go along to avoid the idea that these people are gonna think they're barbaric and horrible for going along with this action. And the emotions are really what's driving it. But we suspected that that might be the case, but it might be arguments of different sorts. So for each scenario, both scenario A with the dog and scenario B with the uh, lifeboat, we had accept, uh, we had condemnable emotions. There we go. Those barbaric passengers committed a horrible murder. I'm sickened by what they did, right? That's supposed to be emotional that should drive people towards condemning them. But then you can also cite principles or rights, right? The passengers do not have the right to judge who gets thrown off, whether someone's large or small, because it's a large person that got thrown off. Injured or uninjured, it's never okay to take a life. So you're citing principles. I mean, I don't know whether to call that reason or just a different way of appealing to emotion, uh, but it's different from the first one where no principle is cited, rights are not cited, just expression of emotion. And so we had both emotional and rational uh, for both condemnable and acceptable for each of the two scenarios. So that's how we got that eight uh, different things there. Um, again, they're not all ideal, but you can see like acceptable emotional for the dog is I feel bad for the poor family. They must have been starving. They must have been like really hungry and they wouldn't have done that with their pet dog. And that's supposed to be swaying people towards saying it's okay. Uh, and then when it's rational, well, they didn't cause any harm. It was already dead. A lot of cultures eat dogs, and uh, you shouldn't let food go to waste. So you're citing more reasons. Or I mean, I think that distinction is, is very often hard to draw, but we did our best. And the results we got were like this. What we found was, somewhat to our surprise, I think several people in the group um, expected the opposite. We found that it was the rational ones that had the effect that when you added these rational arguments to the um, 75 people, right, to deciding the number of people, you got a bigger effect than without those arguments. And when you did the emotional ones, it did not have that. It was not significantly different. Even with 500 subjects, it was not significantly different. You can see those lines are, you know, very close. And so, uh, and so it looks like it's not just that people, I mean, this suggests, it doesn't prove anything, but it suggests that people are going along with the group um, because they're trying to reach a reasonable decision. And if 75 people think this, then that you know, makes them believe that maybe that's a premise I can work with. They're not just going along with the emotions, they're actually uh, trying to um, support uh, the position uh, that they hold, that, uh, the answer they're gonna give, uh, by saying, well, you know, maybe these people know something. I don't know. Maybe I've got good reason to follow them. I'm not so sure. Um, anyway, 
That's a one possible interpretation. A lot more work needs to be done. Uh, in the next study we did, we wanted to see whether uh, the arguments would have the effect without the reference to the 75 people, and it turned out that you got a very similar pattern of results. When you simply said, people who previously took the survey left off the 75. So it looks like uh, if the people are saying this, then it doesn't really matter so much uh, how many of you are. Uh, what matters is that they're giving a reason. So that's kind of optimistic, I suppose. Are there any questions about those studies? Yeah. Uh, i just say on that last one, yeah. that people, my reading of that uh, sort of suggests that that's the majority of people. I mean, if the, if the if that sentence had said some people, yeah. you think, well, it's just a few, but the reading of that suggests most people, even though the word most isn't there. I agree. Yeah. I agree. And if the student were still here, I would get them to rewrite it with some. Mm. Yeah. <coughs> yeah. Um, there was one chart you showed where giving the emotional condemning thing actually reduced the level yeah. of condemnation. Yeah. So by significant we worry about that, yeah. Yeah, you just well, want to it. Yeah, that one, yeah, right here. Is that significant? And I think that's, I mean, what we interpret that is, is we just kind of went too far. You know, I'm sick and by it. It's horrible. It's barbaric. You know, and the people are going, wait a minute. I'm like, let's calm down here. And so, and so they're getting counter-suggestion by the overstatement. Uh, and so we weakened it in the later ones, and sure enough, it turned out not to go that way, but still not to be significantly up here. Did you know the people who didn't change their response? What people who didn't change their response? Yeah. Well, and this was done between subjects, so. So is it, it interesting, um, just to explore the idea that maybe the whys are not in, are independent, so maybe the people who had a considered intuition and then were influenced by it, maybe they're in some way different from the people who were swayed. Yeah, I think that's, you know, a very interesting question. You want to know, are there some people who aren't swayed and other people who are swayed? We're going to talk about that in a second and what factors might actually influence that because I think that's a very interesting uh, question. We're going to talk about one aspect of that. There are a million aspects of that because, of course, these groups, it's features of people, and we're just going to talk about one of them. I'm, I'm, I'm ruining my rule here of only taking one question oh. because, uh, okay. You said now is the time to ask, so. I did. <laughs> I did. You said now is the time to ask one. So, in answer to Dom's question, uh, so I wanted so so that's the work, and the work shows you know varying levels of social conformity for different people in different kinds of scenarios with different kinds of problems. Um, you know, and it's a big complicated area, not a particular uh, experiment uh, that's going to be interesting. And what I want to talk about uh, in the remaining time, I've got like fifteen minutes left if I'm right, um, and then is uh, the lessons. For philosophy, like what do we draw from this? The first lesson I want to talk about is for uh, humility as a virtue, and the second lesson I want to talk about is for moral epistemology and moral intuitionism uh, in particular. Uh, so, humility is often seen as a moral virtue. Not always. Hume didn't like it. Uh, a lot of philosophers don't like it, but it's widely seen as a moral virtue. Um, especially in 
Christian religious tradition. Okay, uh, but moral virtues are not supposed to exclude morality. They're not supposed to like if you've got this moral virtue, you're going to be immoral in other ways. Uh, and it's not supposed to lead you to immorality of other sorts. And it's also not supposed to undermine epistemic virtues and make you less reliable as a source of belief. Okay. Uh, but if humility leads to social conformity, so that people who are humble conform more than people who aren't humble, who think they've got it all figured out, then I'm not going to listen to anybody else. That's not very humble. Uh, so if if thinking you don't have it all figured out makes you more likely to listen to other people, and if moral conformity undermines autonomy, as we saw in the references to Aristotle and Kant, and reliability, because Kant's objection, remember, was, well, it can lead you astray, you can go either way, depending on what group you happen to run into, uh, then humility seems to indirectly undermine these other virtues, and that means why are we calling it a moral virtue? It raises questions about whether this particular character trait uh, is or is not uh, a moral virtue. Okay? Uh, so to test this out, we used a somewhat different scenario. Uh, this is all... You, know, you, you should know that when you do these experiments, the scenarios you choose are often dictated by the funding source. We had, <laughs> we had a grant to work on uh, cognitive enhancers, and so we made this a cognitive enhancement scenario. Okay, I just want to admit all the peculiarities of this work. Um, so Jean uh, has a finals, and, but a week before her exam, she decides to just go to the beach with her friends and blows it off, and then she procrastinates further. And now the day before the exam, and she's frantic, right? Uh, so David says, why don't you take some Adderall, you know? Uh, it'll help you concentrate and stay awake. You never she'd never taken it before. Um, and they'd never even heard of it before entering college. But David says it's okay. She's got, he's got a prescription. The doctor told him what it does, uh, and so on. You can trust me. Uh, so he says many college kids uh, take Adderall to help them study. Drew uh, <laughs> decides to take Adderall just as a as a sideline. It's true that. Most people think many college kids take Adderall to help them study during finals week. If you ask a story, how many people do you think do it? They all go, lots and lots. You know, they give you these high percentages, often over 50%. Turns out it's like less than 10% uh, by going to Sing, did the study for Europe, and they did a similar study in the, in the U.S. It's not nearly as much as people think, but nonetheless, uh, that's kind of realistic according to the uh, students that we had in our group residing this uh, study. Uh, any other comments about this? No. Okay, so now we got to measure my, uh, humility. And the problem with that is that nobody knows what humility is. So uh, we grant from the Templeton Foundation, we actually did a scale of humility, uh, did factor analyses over thousands of subjects, and separated it out into 10 different factors. Uh, including humility proper, although that wasn't a result, that's just the label we gave it, uh, which was actually other regarding, that uh, when people who are humble pay more attention to other people and less attention to themselves. But modesty is a separate factor, like uh, I'm just an average person, just ordinary, no better, and flexibility, I often need to change my views, you know, I'm very uncertain about my positions, you know, that kind of modesty comes out as just factorially in a 
uh, factor analysis comes out separately. So we developed a scale with five statements about each one. These were the four that actually ended up correlating with social conformity is why I put them up here. There's six more. I didn't want to, you know, this slide's already got way too much on it. Uh, so uh, you can see the kinds of items that when people, you know, they were, they were gave answers on a scale of uh, one to seven, how much do you agree? Not at all, very much, slightly, and so on. Uh, and so you get a score of how much modesty, we'll call it, you have, although it's really separated into four different things. Let's call it modesty. Uh, turns out humility has no effect on social conformity if humility is understood as this other regard versus regarding yourself, uh, or other focus, I guess would be a better way to put it, rather than self-focus. But modesty, when you get up in the high range of modesty, then bam, it shoots up, and there's a lot more uh, conformity going on. So it looks like people who really do have what, what people would call this virtue of modesty or humility, however you label it, uh, are going to, in fact, be more likely to conform. And if conformity then leads to moral mistakes when you start hanging around with the wrong people, and at least unreliability when you hang around with different groups at different times, uh, then, uh, then that's going to be a problem and suggest that maybe uh, it's not as much of a moral virtue as some people uh, think it is. Okay. Any questions about the humility stuff? So you can see, Don, how this is, you know, part part of an answer to your question. This is one feature of individuals that leads some to conform a lot more than others, and much more work to be done there. We're doing a cross-cultural study. Yeah, I thought that virtues have a normative aspect. That is, that humility as a virtue would be something like to be properly uh, properly acknowledge the limits of your knowledge or something. Like that. Exactly. And, uh, once you build that in, it's very hard to think about measuring it. Absolutely. And so I, I just I don't think that the way you've described humility uh, as you've measured it captures the idea of it being a virtue at all. So because it doesn't include the, the judgment about what are the conditions under which one should defer the judgment of others and not trust one's own judgment. There's no notion of proper acknowledgement of the limitations of one's that's absolutely right. I mean, so, you know, when I say modesty, there are two ways to do it. I can say, well, you're not really modest unless you're modest in the appropriate circumstances. And say, no, you're modest when you have, you know, low confidence, low self, you know, low kind of self-estimation and so on, and describe it in a neutral way. We're doing it in that neutral way and then asking separately, right, does it, you know, lead to this appropriate? And the answer is this descriptive, right, uh, procedural definition, I mean, uh, you know, defined in this way, uh, modesty leads to conformity, and it's not a virtue because it's not only in the appropriate circumstances, it's also in inappropriate circumstances. But if you define modesty as well, you're not really modest when you have low estimation you know, below what's accurate or what's appropriate in the circumstances, then our study doesn't show that because, as you said, there's no way to measure that. So uh, I don't know how to study that. So we wanted to separate Is this descriptive feature really a virtue? Does it have a normative property? And that's the question, the way we were framing the question. But if you build a normative property into the very definition of modesty or humility, 
You're absolutely right. Then you can't do an experiment. Yeah, but then what it means is the experiment doesn't really have any relevance to this philosophical question about whether humility is a virtue. Well, of course it does, because you just built into the definition of humility that it's a virtue. So just by definition, humility is a virtue. It's just then the only question is to be anybody really have it. <laughs> it's not a question of whether it's a virtue, because that was just part of the definition. Right? So it becomes a separate question. Uh, and how do you tell whether people really have it? Uh, is uh, would, would require a different type of study. Uh, any other? Okay, so last, oh good, eight minutes left. Lessons from moral epistemology. And this is, you know, building on a lot of previous work, uh, but fitting the social conformity into a lot of my previous work. Uh, oh, but before I get to that, the actual argument. Okay. Conformity might seem to suggest unreliability because you can have one view if you go with one group, another view if you go with another group. Now, in order to actually test that, you have to take people and see whether they change in the different groups, and we didn't actually do that. So we're inferring that from the patterns. Uh, I don't like doing that, but I don't have the data otherwise. Uh, but, but still, it looks like it could suggest unreliability. Um, so conformity could increase reliability still if morality is socially constructed. So if you think that to call something wrong is simply to say it fits in with the norms of your society, then conforming to the other people in your society is going to make it more likely that you're right. Because what's right is defined by those So conforming to, it's like, you know, if you want to get the right rules of of football, be it American football or soccer, uh, then you want to conform to what other people think the rules are because that's going to get you more likely to, uh, to get the right rules uh, because the rules are just defined by um, what the other people say. Now, maybe the referees more than the players, but, uh, but still a certain group of people. Uh, but the problem with that, of course, is that many people think morality is not socially constructed in that crude sense. It might be idealized society, but not the actual people you happen to run into. Uh, even if you take a more uh, objective or realist view of morality, conformity still might increase uh, reliability uh, in a certain way. And one way would be if other people are more expert and more likely uh, to get it right than you are. Uh, or when there's a consensus, it's more likely to be right than the individual. Um, and, uh, and here I want to refer to the uh, literature on the wisdom of crowds uh, on temperature and weight. So uh, it's called swarm intelligence or the wisdom of crowds. The idea is you, uh, you take a jar of jelly beans and, you know, like a big jar, and you ask people how many jelly beans are in the jar. And people will guess, and they'll be way off. But if you get 50 people, and they all guess, and you average them, you'll be really close. Like if we were to ask people, what's the temperature in this room right now? And everybody guessed, you'd find that there were big differences between among the guesses, but the average would be like spot on, the temperature. <laughs> so the idea is the crowd, taking the average of the crowd, is actually going to give you an accurate indicator or thermometer, one might even say, 
of you know what the fact uh, really is. And so, uh, if uh, the question is whether that kind of approach works in morality, and so Krauss and Krauss uh, <laughs> uh, did a, a large kind of meta-analysis of these swarm intelligence uh, studies. Uh, they call them swarm intelligence, but others call it wisdom of crowds. And they found, for example, this was actually the jelly bean example, I think, or it was marbles. You know, it was marbles in a glass jar. And the mean in the group was 553.57, so 554, and the correct value was 562. And I stand close, right? And you can see there was a big spread. I mean, people were guessing from 100 to 1,000. But the average comes in at just, you know, the mean comes in at just uh, eight away uh, from the actual correct value, which is pretty amazing when you think about it, right? But sworn intelligence does not work in other kinds of cases. So here's uh, a case where it's the German lottery. Uh, it turns out it's one in 14 million was the chance of winning the German lottery in this case. And they said, okay, so the odds of flipping a coin once and getting it and guessing it and being heads is one in two. Odds of flipping a coin twice is one in four. Three times, you know, and you have two heads in a row, three heads in a row, one in eight, four heads in a row, one in 16, and so on. So now, how many would you have to flip in a row in order to have that number of heads in a row? <coughs> and that number of heads in a row is the same odds as winning the journal lottery. Right? And people understood the question, although it was a little complex. They didn't have a check to make sure they understood it. And the mean was 498, and the correct value was 24. So they're way off. So sometimes swarm intelligence works, and sometimes it doesn't. Right? And the question is when. Like, when does it work? When does it not work? And it turns out it works if the opinions are diverse, so people are making a lot of different guesses about the marbles. If they're independent, they're not talking to each other, okay? They're incentives for truthful reporting, they're not going to be lying. <laughs> the estimates are not distorted by bias. You don't have some kind of heuristic that's throwing you way off, which is probably what's working in the German lottery case, right? You're anchoring at that big number of 14 million. And so 24 seems like way too low a guess. Um, and then the question is, do moral opinions have those features? Well, are they diverse? Sure. But the funny thing here is the storm intelligence model is saying that uh, we're actually going to have more reason to conform when people have diverse opinions than when they have a consensus, which seems kind of backwards, right, and crazy. Uh, are they independent? No, they're clearly not independent. People talk to each other about these issues, teach their kids about morality. Are they truthfully reported? Well, sometimes, but there's also a lot of social pressure. You know, if if somebody in academia actually thinks that homosexuality is immoral and comes out and says it, they'll get shunned by other people. So they're not going to truthfully report their opinion in public, probably. Um, distorted by bias? Of course. You know, there's lots of biases recorded in a large number. So it looks like the conditions under which sworn intelligence are not met uh, in moral opinions. So this kind of swarm intelligence is not reliable in morality, uh, would be our argument. And, and so what does this mean? This means that, well, there's a lot of conformity, and conformity is not going to be a reliable way of forming your moral judgments, uh, at least if morality is independent of the actual society's opinion, 
so you're not doing a kind of crude form of constructivism, uh, then you've got a problem because it looks like conformity is going to lead to unreliability. And now I'll just quickly run through the argument uh, to show why this undermines intuitionism. This is going to go by very quickly uh, for lack of time because I don't want to eat into Joanna's time, um, but I'll do it as quickly as I can. Informed adults are justified in believing that many moral beliefs result from social conformity. I mean, informed adults should have read all these studies. Uh, and so you're not informed if you haven't read these studies. And once you've read these studies, then you know that many moral beliefs, of course it's vague, many, it counts as many, uh, but 80% around which you gotta admit is very, but that's it. That was, you know, uh, more than most other studies. Our, our studies certainly didn't get down on the internet in that particular context but still a large percentage. And if you're justified in believing a large percentage of moral beliefs result from, uh, uh, you're also justified in believing a large percentage of moral beliefs that result from social conformity are false. And one reason is you can form one way or the other, right? Uh, and so they can't both be right. So uh, if some people conform to say yes and other people conform to say no, then uh, one of them's gotta be wrong. So a large number is gonna be false. Again, large percentage, I'm thinking, I mean, I, maybe I've been doing too much science, but you know, there's, you're not going to get a p-value below 0.05, that's pretty sure, right? You're not going to get 95%. Uh, uh, now, some people are going to say that's too stringent a requirement, and we can talk about that. I think that's going to vary depending on the issue. But uh, So, informed adults are justified in believing that a large percentage of their moral beliefs, of, not their, sorry, of moral beliefs in general are false. Not their moral beliefs. You're not talking about everybody's moral beliefs. Just the general class of moral beliefs. Yours, other people's, everybody. Okay? A large percentage of them are false. Now notice that the conformity is what supports this, but if the conformity stuff isn't enough, then we'll start talking about framing effects. We'll talk about partiality. We'll talk about factual ignorance. We'll talk about uh, moral disagreement. And uh, you might need more support for number three than just the conformity, but the conformity is going to be part of the evidence, part of a larger body, large body of evidence. Then, if informed adults are justified in believing that their own moral beliefs are moral beliefs, I mean, you know when you take yourself to be making a moral claim. And so your belief is now a moral belief, and you have this generalization about all moral beliefs, and yours is in that group. So, for any subject S, particularly belief B, and class of belief C, if that subject is justified in believing that that belief is in the group. So believing that their own belief is a moral belief. And it's also justified in believing that a large percentage of beliefs in that class is false. A large percentage of moral beliefs, right? But you're not, and S is not justified in believing that B is in any class of belief C of which a smaller percentage is false. So there's nothing special about it that makes it more reliable than other beliefs. Right? It's not special in any way. Um, uh, then S is justified in believing that S's own belief, B, has a large probability of being false. Because you have to apply the generalization about all beliefs in that class to your own, unless you have some special reason to think you're special. Um, and your belief in this particular case is more reliable than the others. So if an informed adult is not justified in believing that a certain moral belief falls into any class of beliefs of which a smaller percentage is false, that's very convoluted, but basically it's, there's nothing to see. 
There's nothing special about your belief. You're not justified in thinking yours is less reliable than normal, it's more reliable than normal. Then the adult is justified in believing that this particular moral belief has a large probability of being false. Um, but you can't be epistemically justified in holding a belief if you're thinking it has a large probability of being false. I mean, if you think there's a large chance it's going to be false, then you should go, well, I don't know yet. I'm going to have to you know, think about it more, get that probability down. If there's a large enough probability of it being false, then, uh, and you believe that, and are justified in believing that there's this large probability of it being false, then you shouldn't endorse it until you've got better evidence that brings that probability down. So, if an informed adult is not justified in believing then a certain moral belief falls into any class of beliefs of which a smaller percentage is false. That is, there's nothing special about it. Then, the adult's not epistemically justified in holding it. Right? I mean, if someone's justified in holding and believing that, suppose that you do have a reason to think your belief is special, that it's more reliable than normal, then you're able to infer that belief from the premise. Namely, it's in this group C star, with a low probability of being false, right? Beliefs in that group are likely to be true, are likely to be true, much more likely than normal. Therefore, this one's much more likely than the normal. Then you're going to be able to infer that belief from the premise that it falls in that special class. Uh, so, an informed adult is not epistemically justified in holding a moral intuition unless that adult is able to infer the belief from some premise. Because the only condition under which they're justified is when they have this belief that it's special, it's especially reliable. And if they got that belief, they are able to infer it. Okay? So, moral intuitionism claims that some informed adults are justified in holding moral beliefs without depending on any ability to infer. Uh, uh, therefore, moral intuitionism is false because it turns out Whenever you're justified, you have to have this background belief that your moral belief is special in some way, and then you can infer it. Okay? That was very quick. Uh, is probably going to raise some questions about it, and we can talk about it, but I wanted to get the argument out on the table. You can check it for formal validity, and then the question is going to be, uh, are the premises true? Uh, notice the conclusions in moral epistemology. It's not moral relativism, or it's not about realism, or objectivity, or semantics. It's all about what you're justified in believing, okay? And it's also not leading to full moral skepticism. It's simply saying you can't trust your intuitions until you've confirmed that they are in a special class, and then there's an inference, which gets you a coherence picture, not as opposed to an intuitionist picture, but it's not supposed to lead to skepticism. Uh, so, uh, but I hope it's interesting enough, right? Even you know, just to get rid of intuitionism, even if you don't get all the way to skepticism. So, uh, thanks. <laughs>